0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, refractive surgery eye drops and CMV uveitis at APAO.
1: We have a way to change the vision by changing the refractive index by adding some nanoparticle inside the cornea.
0: First this. a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, You simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol, and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning, and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR.
2: Great job. Search iWorld AR,
0: one word on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2018 Annual Congress of the Asia-Pacific Academy of Ophthalmology in Hong Kong. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from David Smadja on refractive surgery nanoparticles and Soon Pig Chi on CMV anterior uveitis. I'm here with David Smadja. David, you gave a talk, a really, really innovative, interesting subject uh, that's going to put us all out of business. No, I'm teasing. But it, it's if I understand you right, this is something that a patient can do at home and treat the refraction that he has. Uh, tell me about it.
1: So, you know, I'm, I'm involved now in a, a couple of uh, projects that are related to nanotechnology. And I'm trying to apply uh, those nanotechnology to the field of ophthalmology. So one of our projects we have, uh, it's basically to change the way we're going to correct the vision. Uh, instead of changing the shape as we do, for example, with a laser vision correction, we change the, the cornea. Uh, or to add another uh, diopter inside the, le- the, the the eye, like an uh, uh, implantable lens for example. Uh, we have a way to change the vision by changing the refractive index uh, by adding some nanoparticle inside the cornea. How we do that? The idea is to have uh, the patient at home uh, that can just get his refraction down uh, through a specific software, uh, it can be clipped on your phone for example, and then you can use a source of laser to project a pattern, optical pattern, that will correct and will be adjusted according to your uh, refraction onto the cornea, the superficial uh, part of the epithelium. And then you just have to uh, instill some eye drops, and inside the eye drops, you will have. Uh, biological and compatible uh, nanoparticle that will get into uh, those tiny puncture that we did with the laser uh, to change the refractive index in a very well uh, organized way, exactly where we did the pattern and, uh, and, and that will change the vision. So we did some uh, preliminary uh, uh, tests on pig eye uh, and we tested the, this treatment for myopia and for uh, presbyopia for myopia we could reach uh, and achieve a correction of uh, 3 diopter of myopia which is pretty good uh, and for presbyopia with a different pattern that we stamp onto the cornea uh, we achieve a correction of uh, 2.74 diopter which is pretty good so we are now uh, moving on uh, with this project uh, to make new uh, in vivo uh, examination in this way we could uh, answer a
0: different type of uh, other question this is fascinating fascinating stuff um, so it, 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 the the idea of changing the refractive index in um, in, an, in an organized way to achieve uh, a refractive change for the for the for the patient it certainly in the tissue that you're working in that sort of very very anterior cornea this is something novel but this is Generally, something that's being talk, talked about with treatments like femtosecond laser treatments to acrylic lenses in patients uh, with refractive errors after after cataract surgeries. The concept's not totally totally novel. I know, obviously, you uh, can't talk, talk about the the composition of the the nanoparticles, but let me ask you: um, the uh, they're going in the epithelium is the anticipation that as the epithelial cells are shed that the, the refractive treatment will uh, uh, need, need to be re- redone? That, that, that is something that, that's, a, that's a transient treatment? So
1: we have a couple of things that has to be uh, checked in the future uh, and what have to be what I can tell you right now is that uh, it's a very compatible nanoparticles uh, that's number one second the way we change the refractive index is different than what we do with the laser because we just with the laser we reorganize the tissue right. in order to, to change the refractive index what we do here is that we are adding a, a new uh, component that are, that are the nanoparticles uh, that will change the refractive index uh, how long it will last onto the cornea uh, that's one of the questions that need to be answered uh, and uh, we are working on for the, uh, the future uh, students
0: now I'm, I'm sure that uh, the the pig eyes didn't give you any feedback as far as how how un- uncomfortable it was to have these little micro perforations uh, but what what is your sense of I mean a, a, a patient's not going to do at home something that's painful of course so that that the same the
1: idea of the micropuncture that what the laser will do Uh, is really to have the the level of the lesion there will be exactly the same level of uh, rubbing a contact lens on the periphery of the cornea Uh, so we are just talking about the first layer of the epithelium which is uh, uh, something that is not uh, painful at all obviously some of the uh, partner in this project uh, have tried already that type of lesion and they don't
0: feel anything yeah unbelievably interesting stuff David, I want to thank you for for, for for bringing this enormously novel topic to us. I, I look forward to uh, following this going forward, seeing how uh, uh, things play play out. And as always, I want to thank you for your generosity uh, with your time with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. I'm here with Soon Chi. Soon you gave a wonderful talk on uh, herpetic anterior uveitis. So this is a big topic. You know, there's there there's a lot. That's involved you both diagnostically and therapeutically. Let me get you to sort of give us the uh, lay of the, of the land and then I'll have some more specific questions.
2: Okay, so maybe I should start by saying how hepatic uveitis presents and what makes us suspect that this could be a uveitic um, anterior uveitis, hepatic u- anterior uveitis. So these patients typically would have uh, high intraocular pressure. And during the acute phase, especially something that is either HSV or VZV, you may see iridoplegia in that area where the iris is really not moving quite as well as the rest of the iris in response to light. Um, For cytomegalovirus, this can also present um, with high pressure, but typically the eye is not angry. It's a very quiet eye, but the pressure is extremely high. In fact, it's much higher than in herpes simplex and in zoster. So... The, you know, and that pressure can be really quite transient and very little anterior chamber cells unlike uh, simplex and zoster. So that's a time when the patient presents acutely that we want to make the diagnosis conclusively. And in our eye center, what we do typically is to do a little paracentesis to sample the aqueous for real-time PCR analysis to really nail down the specific virus that we're dealing with because that implies, um, you know, it has great implications on how we treat this patient and whether or not we give this patient treatment for the long term as well.
0: So talk, talk about that, how, uh, how would treatment differ? I mean, obviously, uh, treatment in uh, simplex and in zoster differ not so much in the modality of therapies as in what the doses for the therapies are. How does therapy for CMV differ from those
2: two? Okay, so CMV has um, two ways. It can present in the anterior segment for the uveitis aspect. Of course, it can also cause endothelitis. But talking about the anterior uveitis, it can present as a recurrent acute hypertensive episodes that are self-limiting even. And it can present in the chronic anterior uveitis form. So really depending on um, which modality, the treatment would be slightly different because the hypertensive form, very often we may not even... One to treat the patient with antiviral if the patient is not going to suffer any significant sight threatening complications such as glaucoma and endothelial cell loss now these patients i routinely would do endothelial cell count to compare with the fellow eye because this tends to be a unilateral disease if there is no significant um, loss of vision over time monitored also with a, a humphrey visual field and the attacks of pressure rise are not frequent We may just treat them during that episode with some antivirals, anti-glaucoma medication. Um, I generally try to avoid topical steroids. I use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. And this would help to contain the the inflammation, which is really quite mild. We don't even need to give any cycloplegics because the flare is low and they don't form psynikia. Whereas when we're dealing with a chronic type of anterior uveitis, which tends to be in males and more elderly males, around 60 and above, uh, they suffer significant morbidity because the endothelial cell count drops and these patients may even go into corneal decompensation and require transplantation. Uh, In addition, the glaucoma, although the pressure may not be quite as high as in the acute recurrent form, it tends to be more sustained and if the patient has been misdiagnosed and not treated early and given topical steroids, For the long term to control that chronic inflammation that doesn't seem to respond to topical steroids anyway. uh, They develop a pressure that just keeps going higher and higher and they may end up with glaucoma surgery because medical treatment has failed. And for these patients, really the prognosis can be quite dim. Uh, They need glaucoma surgery, they need uh, corneal transplantation and even with corneal transplantation, they end up with problems. Because for transplantation, we need to give them topical steroids for a certain duration, at least six months. But when we give unprotected uh, corticosteroid treatment without the antiviral cover, basically it allows the virus to proliferate. So for these patients with great morbidity, generally we, I would try first using the topical well, gansaclovir, uh, gansaclovir uh, application. So we have uh, eye drops made uh, commercially by ThIA. It's called Virgen Gel. I think in um, the US it's marketed as Zergen. It's right. 0.15%. And of course, all and it's given TID. Uh, well, we or, give or five give times five do, times okay. a day. Yeah, and that was actually uh, initially meant to treat HSV, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely is effective against CMV. The penetration again is um, variable; it's not that good, and so the efficacy varies from patient to patient. So some patients really it works very well, and we can control the inflammation. In addition, with some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that we maintain for really for the long term. Because these patients, being chronic, we can't seem to take them off the medication. Uh, For patients who don't really respond so well in the chronic form, uh, we make our own eye drops and we use gansaclovir and we make a 2% topical gansaclovir. And initially, we would treat like every two hourly. When they get a little better, that may be like one month. We then drop to three hourly. And then, you know, if they really respond quite well, we would then drop it to perhaps uh, three to four times a day. And the problem is how long. And, you know, many of these patients, after we treat them for a significant duration or period, the inflammation seems to quieten a little. But still, you see cells, you still see KPs on the cornea. And sometimes they may have progressive endothelial cell loss. So for these patients, we always repeat the aqueous step. And we are often not surprised, although the viral load has dropped in the aqueous, it's still persistent. So really for CMV, I think the problem is that the duration is indefinite. And so I tell my patients when they have this disease that, well, I'm, unfortunately, you know, some people even with cold sores, and explain to them, well, that's another herpes virus, they have to take maintenance treatment as a prophylaxis really so that they don't keep getting the cold. So every few months, the moment they stop the medication. And it is the same in the eye.
0: So I, I have, I have, I've got several questions. Uh, let, let me ask a, a, a couple questions, one, one easy one, and then one, I think, a little bit more more complicated. One of the, so w- with, with herpetic uveitis aside from CMV, there there there's this sort of triad there's a a an anterior uveitis there's an endotheliitis there's a trabeculitis yes. and often um, one of those will be much more prominent than the than the than the than the other two um, with CMV, do you see the same sort of thing? Can you see a, a sectoral endotheliitis that, you know, is, is a huge tip-off, first of all, that, that there's something that's herpetic going on? So that's, that's question one, and, and before you, that's the easy one. <laughs> uh, question two is, is this, is if you have someone with an acute increase in intraocular pressure, And you know, I mean, these are are, are people for whom the pressure can come down very, very nicely on really not very much steroid. Mm -hmm. What is your hesitance in using steroid in that acute setting with the CMV patients?
2: Okay, so I think um, in the Singapore setting, we see a lot more CMV than HSV or VZV because for any patient who comes in and we are uncertain of the diagnosis and we've excluded you know other causes from blood tests, we still resort to an aqueous step because we have a lot of infections, like even tuberculosis. But of course, they would present differently. So what would make me suspect that this is CMV would be the type of keratic precipitates. And uh, the type of keratic precipitates are usually, in the acute form, is just one single one. It's granulomatous. The iris is normal, it's reactive. There are very, very few cells. Sometimes you hardly even see cells. But the pressure is over 45 in in two-thirds of the patients who present. And they would have a strong history of previous episodes that are recurrent. And sometimes if they just ignored it because they were traveling, they would feel better after three, four days. And the pressure had come down spontaneously. So that would be really a clue for the recurrent type that we call Postner-Schussman syndrome. Right. And the chronic form they will just say, you know, I just thought I had some cataract because my eye is a little rare, but it's not that uncomfortable. Yeah. And you you see a nice reactive uh, pupil. You may see uh, some uh, diffuse stromal atrophy, but rare to have any kind of sectoral atrophy. They don't get here but they may have posterior subcapsular cataract. Flare is not very high, but the KPs can be sometimes uh, very fine filiform and very diffuse. And that, in our setting... We would have called it a fox heterochromic, without the heterochromia, right? right. Uridoscyclitis, and actually we started to tap all these, thinking that well, maybe we'll find some virus. And at the time that it was found to be associated with rubella, rubella yeah. in the West, we hmm. were finding CMV.
0: Oh, that's so interesting.
2: So, we, we then began to realize as I looked through the entire literature that there are many reports of maybe, you know, this case we found HSV, in this case we even found toxoplasmosis, another case we found toxocara. It then gave me an understanding that, you know, the eye can only respond in a certain way and it's limited in how it may manifest itself. And so, FHI. Which is really a a syndrome which has got certain criteria that we need to fulfil clinically for us to make that diagnosis. Really, is a syndrome with many causes. So, in the West, we may find rubella; in the East Asia, we find a lot of CMV in Taiwan, in Thailand, in uh, Japan, and definitely Singapore.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, One last. Question. So, um, you describe for 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 patients on chronic therapy. I don't want to call it maintenance therapy, but for patients on 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 chronic therapy with persistent or recurrent or uh, uh, recalcitrant uveitis that you have them on chronic topical therapy. Why do you do that if the primary problem is not keratitis? Why don't you have them on systemic antiviral therapy like valacyclovir or famciclovir or something like that? Okay,
2: sure. So. Actually, we did do our treatment uh, modalities as described. In fact, when we started, it was intravenous gansaclovir. We didn't even have the oral form available then. Right. So we did that. We, did, uh, we had vitricet implant, okay, through the past planar, like what we right, do I remember for CMV that. retinitis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And we had uh, individual injections, like what we would do for CMV retinitis. And then we had the topical. And we published our data in 2010 in BJO, comparing the four... Modalities that we treated for uh, three months each. Okay. Well, when we have implant, rituxan, with and, and we had systemic therapy, it was really very good. Hundred percent. You know, it was able to get the PCR down to zero. But the moment the medication was stopped or the implant medication wore out at eight months, boom, it was back. Okay. So it didn't have any long-term effect at all. And, of course, when we give the oral form, first, it's very expensive. Secondly, it's not uh, always that safe. For some patients, they do get bone marrow toxicity. Okay, so we get patients with neutropenia, they, the, our ID specialist prescribe this, and they have to come back every two weeks for blood tests to make sure that they don't get neutropenia. Otherwise, the dose would have to be uh, stepped down. And the problem is that, you know, the moment you stop it, Even though they've paid so much, they've gone through so much, uh, you know, taking this medication, come back to hospital for visits to check the blood and so on, it relapses. So then we found really, if we were to just give them gel, although the response rate with the gel being 0.15% was not 100%, it was in fact only two-thirds, we were able to safely continue this on a maintenance dose with that low dose of non-steroidal medication.
0: Really, really, really interesting stuff. Student Pick, I want to thank you for bringing this, this fascinating topic, uh, really interesting topic to us, uh, for making it very clear and really is complicated. Uh, and as always, for being so very, very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. David Smadja is Director of the Refractive Surgery Department and Director of Ophthalmology Research and Innovation Unit at the Sharit Sedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. Sun pak Chi is associate professor in the Singapore National Eye Center in Singapore. Ask questions of Dr. Smaja, Dr. Chi, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at as seen from here, is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I, Josh Young.